Now, you and I may have a garden or a big farm here or there, but God, the ultimate gardener, is the one who waters the world with the rain and scatters seed through the wind. God is the ultimate farmer. God is also the ultimate designer and artist. His sketchbook isn't a, a, you know, a trendy moleskin journal, but it's the Arizona sky where each night he sovereignly stuns us with another orange and purple sunset. God doesn't just choose the best colors. He's the one who chose that colors should even exist. The color blue was his idea. Can you imagine life without the color blue? Every time an artist dips her paintbrush into some blue paint, she's acknowledging that God's work is good. When we're stunned by the beauty of an ocean, when we experience God's excellence and his handiwork, when we see the beautiful blue ocean, we should be moved to gratitude and we should affirm that God is a good worker and he is the ultimate uh, artist. But God's great design includes function as well as beauty, creating balanced ecosystems with functional and renewable material like trees. Yes, a tree may look good, but it has a myriad of functions. How many families have had important conversations as they've gathered around wood tables and chairs? How many people have been saved from frigid winters because of burning firewood? How many of us have been moved to tears as we've read the beautiful sentences of the world's best books made on pieces of paper from, a pulp, from the pulp of a tree? And how many people have enjoyed some delicious pancakes with maple syrup? How many children have climbed up trees affirming that the first playground equipment God made when he made a tree. Am I right? Thousands and thousands of children. God is the ultimate artist and designer, creating things with both beauty and function. God is the ultimate manager who didn't just make things and leave them alone, but who constantly watches over them and keeps them running. As Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus upholds the universe by the very word of his power. God is the ultimate real estate agent who decides when and where people live. And you may thank your real estate agent for helping you find your home, but Acts 17.26 basically says that God decides when and where you'll live for his good purposes. God is the ultimate counselor who in his, his omnipresence goes to the places of greatest pain and brings comfort in the moments when we feel isolated and alone to those in prison in solitary confinement where no one can get there god is present as the wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father and prince of peace god is the great teacher who is the source of all knowledge and revelation the one who gives teachers their content students their cognitive abilities and who actually entered into the textbooks through the incarnation and finally, God is the ultimate construction worker who built this beautiful world with the power of his word. And even though this world is marred and broken by sin, God came into the world, spent the first part of his life as a carpenter, and then rebuilt our lives with the nails in his hands. 
He's the one who will one day remodel the shabby brokenness of this sin, uh, just infested world when Jesus comes to finally restore all things. God is a worker. And if you want to know why God gives a rip about your work, it's because you're created in his image and he himself is a worker. The second point, God created us to work. We are created to work. Have you ever noticed the joy and the sense of accomplishment you have after you've poured yourself out in a hard day's work? When you've been productive, when your hands are dirty, when the checklist is complete, there's joy, right? Yeah, somebody, some A-type personality was like, yes, the, (laughs) the checklist. There's joy when the accountant looks at the balance sheet and sees that everything lines up. There's joy when a farmer reaps a harvest and a pile of blueberries attest to a job well done. There's joy when a photographer captures the most important memories with perfect lighting and perfect angles that a bride and a groom may ever have. We know of the mysterious joy when we see a yard without weeds, a skillet with perfectly caramelized onions, and exquisite code written from a software developer. Software developers over here, huh? (laughs) So what do we do with that sense of joy? As Christians, we kind of, you know, honestly sometimes feel guilty that we get so fired up about work, but I don't think that should be the case. Uh, We were created to flourish, and we were created to be workers. If you look in Genesis 1 and 2, you will see that God created a world that was perfect, perfectly ordered, void of all brokenness. It was whole. It was filled with joy. It was filled with flourishing. And you know what was there? Work. Work is not a side effect of the fall. The reason why our work is really, really hard is a side effect of the fall. But work itself is good and a part of human flourishing. And this is what the Bible is getting at when it talks about how for the first six days, God created all of this amazing stuff. And then when we get to Genesis uh, 126, it says, And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then it goes on. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. The first thing in the very first few chapters of the Bible that we learn about humanity is that we are created in the image of a God who's a worker and that he explicitly calls us to work, to multiply, to fill the earth, to have dominion, to subdue. All fancy ways of saying work. In other words, we were, God gave us our strength, intelligence, skill, perception, so that we could employ these faculties to do the work that he created us for. So 
when we also think about work in Genesis 1 and 2, it's not just about what you see that those chapters actually say, but I think that we know that we're called to work by what it doesn't say. Here's why. Have you ever noticed what the Bible doesn't say about the eighth day? It doesn't say that on the eighth day, God made smoothies or iPhones or houses or bicycles or kitchen tables. Have you ever noticed how curious it is that God showed tremendous restraint in the creation of the world? He didn't make everything right away, but he made the world with, with, uh, that's just filled with absolute potential. And he invites us to come and join him in creating, cultivating, and filling the earth. He gave in, the, in this world, in the first uh, week of creation, he filled the world with raw elements that are a part of every invention, the ingredients for every recipe, and teeming with immeasurable potential for all of the cool stuff that we see today. Then he lovingly invited us as his image bearers to join him in his work. God cares about your work because he created you to work. And finally, God works through your work. God continues to work in the world. He didn't just stop after he created it, but he continues to work. But he accomplishes much of his work through us. We are his instruments, his conduits. For example, the the Bible clearly teaches that God is our provider, the one who provides our meals. And how many of us have prayed the important and beautiful prayer in the, in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. But how many of us, when we've prayed that, opened our eyes and a loaf of bread was floating in front of us or a plate of lasagna came down from the sky? No, we are sitting here today because God has provided for us abundantly. But how did God provide for us? When we pray that prayer, God, what he does is he answers that prayer by calling somebody to be a farmer to grow some grain. Or he, and then he calls someone else to open a mill to turn that grain into flour. Then he calls someone to be a baker to make the bread. And then he calls someone to open a store to sell the bread. And then he gives you useful skills and abilities so that you can get a job, make money, and pay for that bread. If you are called to be a farmer, a miller, a baker, or a, stone, a store owner, you should know that you are doing a holy work as an instrument of God's provision and his sustenance of life. God cares about our work because God cares about his creation, especially those who he's created in his image, you and I. And God does many types of work. For example, God is still in the business of creating. God continues to create new and beautiful things in the physical world, but he uses the human creativity of web designers, musicians, and landscapers. God's in the business of providing he still provides for us, but he uh, sustains and provides us through the hard worker of policymakers and repairmen and engineers and stay-at-home moms. He uses these people to sustain, replenish, and provide our basic needs. Think about the valuable role of the plumber. 
Think about it. Not many people in here feel like they're called to be plumbers or that that's a, a high and valuable job, but it is. Because if not for the work of the plumber, we would be standing in feces right now. So thank God for the plumber. Amen? All right. God is in the business of justice. And he's passionate about justice and a flourishing public life. And that's why he calls some people to become police officers and city managers and judges and lawyers and diplomats. This is good work. God's in the business of compassion. And he deeply cares about those who are suffering and in pain. So much so that he entered into our world and experienced our pain on the cross. But part of the way that he addresses our pain is through the people that he calls to be nurses and pharmacists and firefighters. God is in the business of revelation. Of, of, he's passionate about truth. And he wants us to know truth. And he certainly uses knuckleheads like myself and, and the other pastors here to teach the Bible and to teach the special revelation that comes through Scripture. But he also uses scientists and journalists and scholars and writers and teachers to show us this amazing world that he's created and to bring truth to light. So what are you called to? Ultimately, you are called to love. Jesus says that the great commandment is to love God and to love our neighbors. And how can we not do this through our work? It's where we spend the vast uh, the majority of our days. And so if we really take Jesus seriously, we've got to think about how this applies to work. We love God by working with him and reflecting his attributes each day. We love our neighbors when we provide jobs through entrepreneurship, provide good sandwiches as we work at restaurants, promote an ordered office as an administrative assistant, or beautify our neighborhoods by planting trees in our front yards. This is the type of church that we want to be. This isn't just my little pet project that I get excited about, but we have conversations about it all the time. We pray for you. I, I, I in particular, am the guy who likes to pray for all the business owners in our, our, our community. And what if we would flood the city with people who did work and saw the incredible value of it and lived in such a way that says, yes, God cares about my work. And we lived in such a way that showed the world that all of life is all for Jesus. Amen? Here's what we're going to do now. I want to show you some examples of people that I really admire. So if you, the people on the panel, you can come up now. Um, these are the people that I really admire and that I've asked them to be on this panel because I've seen the ways in which they do their work with excellence. Um, again, I want to remind you that you can text in your, in your questions to that number right there. And I'll just tell you about a few of the people who are coming up. Uh, they'll introduce themselves in a second, but we've got Joe Johnston, who's a visionary and the entrepreneur behind a ton of things, including Joe's Barbecue, Agritopia, Joe's Farm Grill, and Liberty Market. Um, well, actually... Sweet, cool. Um, we've got Christy Hickel, a doctoral candidate in, in social work 
at ASU and the Associate Director for the Office uh, of, of Sex Tra Trafficking Intervention. We have Oye Waddell, who's the founder of Hustle Phoenix, and he's also a resident here. Kareen Shark, who's a stay-at-home mom doing that very important work. And Gabe Cooper, who's the founder and president of, of Bushfire. So what we're going to do is uh, I'm, we're going to, actually I'm going to start off by just asking you all a very simple question. What do you do, if you can explain it, your name too, that's good. What do you, your name, what do you do, and why does God give a rip about your work? Go ahead and start. Christy. Uh, yes. There we go. My name is, whoa, uh, my name is Christy Hickel. Um, you did a nice introduction, so I won't go into that, but the things that I do kind of that en encompass my job um, include doing some research and publication. Um, my area of research is specifically um, sex trafficking interventions. Um, I do uh, some therapy work as well. I work with women and girls um, and men uh, who have been sex trafficked, and uh, I do trauma work with them. So I have this kind of unique ability to, I get to do some of the research and hopefully find some of the things that help them. And then also, um, I still have a face to talk to and, and things that make that real for me. And then I get to teach students about social work, which I think is the most incredible and best profession ever. Um, and I think, <laughs> excellent. Social work out that way. It's social work month. So, um, is it, really? uh, it is actually, wow. yes. How convenient. Um, I think God cares a lot about what I have to do, um, not, not so much, and I tell my students this, not so much because I am irreplaceable. Um, I would like to be very replaceable in that a lot of other people can do the job that I do, but because we get to have such an impact and such an ability to um, bear witness to the experiences of people that are marginalized and oppressed, and um, I think that there is nothing more interesting and better that I could do. Yeah, you can give her a hand. Yeah, my name is Joe Johnston, and my giftedness is um, under various names, visionary, inventor, dreamer, doer, that sort of thing. But the basic idea of what I do is um, I create things, get things started, but then I don't operate them. <laughs> so my, that's, that's the phase of creating something that I do. And it's been involved recently in restaurants, community, and um, I'm designing a coffee roaster. So. Nice. Um, name's Gabe Cooper, and uh, my company's called Brushfire. Uh, we're a technology company, so we create uh, mobile and web products for a variety of different organizations, some for ourselves, some for others. And so our customers are um, sometimes big media companies like cable companies, Fortune 500 kind of companies, and then half of our customers are uh, big Christian ministries like uh, Campus Crusader, Compassion International, and we sort of have a passion for uh, helping ministries sort of start leading the way for once instead of trailing behind. And so we're doing our best with technology to help accomplish that. Great. Thank you. Oye Waddell. Uh, Hustle Phoenix is the company that I operate. Um, the premise of Hustle Phoenix is to empower urban entrepreneurs. When I say urban, I'm thinking, inter I'm, hear me when I say inner city uh, entrepreneurs to start businesses and is motivated, motivated by the gospel. And so how does the gospel look uh, in your business, and how do you live out the gospel and the, the things that you do? Um, and so why does God give a rip about it? I, I look at the inner city as a place uh, where I'm from, uh, from inner city Los Angeles, but God is continuously redeeming uh, the city. 
and, uh, and there's a ton of opportunities, ton of people that have great ideas and great uh, passions and visions, uh, but do not have anybody to come alongside and say, hey, let me walk with you and help you and help you tease out what God has called you to and how God has gifted you. And so that, that's what I do. So thank you. I'm Kareen Shark, and I'm the token stay-at-home mom. Uh, what, what? <laughs> uh, actually, more accurately, though, I think uh, I would describe my, uh, my vocation as, <clears throat> as a revolutionary development and generational cultivation. So if you're a stay-at-home mom, that was for you. Um, it's, you know, it's a lot more than staying at home in your yoga pants. Although I'm really good at that as well. Um, yeah, so my husband and I have two little ones. Uh, we have a seven-year-old daughter and a four-year-old son. And this is our first year homeschooling. So uh, really, when I'm a stay-at-home mom, I'm really at home right now. I'm doing a lot of stuff at home. So uh, we, get to, we get to go on this huge adventure with our kids this first year of, that, of uh, homeschooling. And that capitalizes upon what we're doing at home in general. But uh, we really uh, look at that opportunity in parenthood as um, something that's significant for uh, not only for our kids and who they're becoming and who God's created them to be, but also as a part of the next generation, the next generation of the kingdom. So we're not only working for the now, but we're working for the not yet. So I say we a lot because, yes, I'm a stay-at-home mom, and that's something that a lot of responsibility falls on me. But, uh, you know, I'm fortunate to have a, a partner and a team member and my husband. So uh, he's my partner in crime. So we, we get to do all that together. Yeah, so I think we're going to start off. Um, I'm going to pose a question to everyone here on the panel. And in the meantime, we really need you guys to text in your questions. So we're going to do the same deal that we usually do. You're going to text... Uh, all of life followed by your question to 411247 and uh, the more questions that we have the better this panel discussion is going to be so we really want to hear from you uh, and maybe you have a question that is directed to someone or maybe you have a question in general that we will toss out to uh, the individual that seems to uh, best fit that bill. So uh, my question for everyone here is how does your calling and your career collide? So if you guys are game, I'm just going to pass the mic down and kind of be thinking about how you might answer that while everybody else uh, texts in a couple starter questions, hopefully, and we'll get the ball rolling. Calling and career, that's a good one. Um, how does it collide? Well, I'll tell you about a little bit about my history, just brief history. Um, like I said, I grew up in the inner city, and I've always seen opportunities, uh, and I always felt like, God, you've given me so many things uh, to, to bless the community with, and I say, um, how, does, how can I capitalize or empower others to get what I received? And so that's kind of how I look at the calling and, and my career. It's like, I always want to bless and empower others unto good works, and so... Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I feel like uh, God has at least gifted me to some degree at uh, being a discipler and discipling others, particularly discipling guys. Um, I thought for a long time that meant um, ministry. In fact, I 
sort of went back to school again, got another degree so I could go into ministry and realize that was probably a result of bad preaching. I wish Jim would have been around to correct me at the time. I, th- um, I think I was around, but I was saying the other stuff. So. Yeah, you, were, yeah. you probably were. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, I think for me, um, this all sort of came to life when I realized my ability to disciple others meant that I could um, create a team of uh, really geeky dudes that could build incredible, incredible products and pour into those guys in a way where they felt sort of uh, empowered to make great stuff. And as a group, we feel like we're ushering in God's creation um, and his kingdom uh, when we're building software. And so it wasn't until I sort of understood this theology that I understood the context of wanting to make disciples and doing that in the context of sort of a marketplace and a bunch of geeks and half of them don't know Jesus and it's, you know, a ton of fun. That's it. Um, For me, it's well aligned right now, but it wasn't always so. When I was uh, 32, Cindy and I uh, and some friends from essentially what would be our RC um, started a place called the Coffee Plantation on Mill Avenue, which is now uh, Five Guys and Jimmy John's, I think. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, so um, we started that, and it grew rapidly. It grew to where in about three years we had 150 employees, we had a coffee house where True Foods is at the Biltmore. We had two stores at the Fashion Square. So it was like crazy busy. But the busier it got, the more miserable I got because um, we were just dealing with so many employee issues. And I myself am artistic by nature and creative by nature. And so if any of you are artists, you know that managing uh, people is just not your forte. Mm-hmm. So I didn't see any way out of it other than selling the company. So we sold the company. And after that, I uh, worked for the company for a couple years and then uh, took a year off on sabbatical and examined my life and examined uh, my faith, examined how I should do work in the future. And I got involved with a ministry called Life Purpose Ministries, which dealt with exactly this, this issue and found out that my giftedness was visionary, creative, that sort of thing. And so I vowed that I would structure my life going forward focusing all of my efforts in doing that gift with gusto and then aligning myself with people who had the same vision to accomplish uh, the purposes at hand. And so that has been a very freeing thing. And thankfully, at this point, I'm able to, you know, use use my giftedness probably 70% of the time in the work that we do. So, yeah. That's great. Um, I will start by answering this question by saying um, that my first, I didn't set out to be a social worker necessarily. I didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, and then my first sort of real job um, was at a group home for adolescent girls. And um, I, it just sort of wrecked me. Um, there was, I, I sort of realized I couldn't work with kids that weren't at risk. I wasn't interested in hearing other stories. I wanted to be the case manager that sat next to all the probation officers at the softball games. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and then I went on to kind of to, to get further education. It's a good idea in social work because we don't make many dollars in our field. And um, started uh, sitting in in a group with women who were uh, getting out of prostitution. And um, I, it, it was such an intense experience, but I realized that um, I, had to, uh, I had to be part of the, the shoulders that carried their stories. I had, to, um, I had to be part of that, and it was very much um, a calling. It was also important for me because the people I worked with weren't Christians, and when clients would say, um, tell this horrific story of their lives and say, Jesus was always there for me. They needed somebody to say, that's wonderful to hear, right? When they said, you know, nothing works for me in getting sober, but if I pray. And, you know, my co-facilitator was like, 
awkward, right? We don't talk about religion. And I got mm. to say, I'm so happy to hear that. You need to keep doing that, right? So I got to just be at least the person that said, um, spiritual coping is real coping, you know? And then when I had students in my classes that said, um, I don't know any Christians, and my parents say that, um, you know, you can't be vote this way and be Christian at the same time, right? Or, or how do I sort of manage all the stuff that I'm hearing? It's, it's too much for me. Um, but trying to connect and say, there is a role for Christians here. There aren't that many in our field. I don't, I don't see very many, but, um, but there's a role for us. It's, it's such a, uh, the story of um, God's heart for the poor in scripture is so obvious um, that, uh, that we need more people doing this work. That's great. I don't need a mic because they want to hear from you. So let's throw a question up there and um, we'll hand it off to the person who's best. I can't read because I've got bad vision, so it's all you, Kareem. That's why I'm sitting on the end, so yeah. screen. <clears throat> all right, Christy, how can Christians help in fighting sex trafficking without hurting the cause? you got to give her the yeah. thing. This is going to be a hard thing right. with this mic. <laughs> that is that I would love to talk to whoever asked this afterwards because that's a long, that's a wonderful and a long question. Um, the this particular field is um, kind of is is sexy, is attractive. Um, people are interested in it, and a lot of really well-meaning um, faith groups have wanted to help. But unfortunately, sometimes um, us as Christians can uh, exploit. Um, just as just as much as any pimp out there can by coming and saying, uh, we'll help you as long as you dress this way, act this way, say these things, pray this way, do this stuff, um, and then tell your story a whole bunch uh, so that you get to be re-traumatized over and over again. So I think the way that Christians can do that is to learn about the issue in a really real way um, and then to do the things to support the agencies that are doing that work. Do your homework. Um, find the agencies out there. I'm happy to give you what I think is the list, but you can do that on your own even. Um, the people that are doing that real work and then do the stuff that they need, right? They may not need you to go and stand on a street corner and hug sex trafficking victims, right? Um, because that's sort of what people want to do. Uh, that's, that's salacious and it's fun, you know, sort of fun, I guess. Um, but what, what most of the time those agencies need is uh, clothes and prayers and um, here's uh, bus passes and, um, you know, the kind of support that is, that is real in that way. And then also understanding the laws and supporting legislation, um, understanding each piece of it and really educating yourselves, I think, is the best first way to do that. That's great. That's right. You're asking. Yeah. Next question. Um, <clears throat> this one's to me, but I'm going to, I would love to say something um, to what Christy just said that, I was reminded of this week um, in that oftentimes in our generation, we want to be the one, we want to set these goals and what do I want to be when I grow up? And we want to be the ones to do the big thing or do the frontline thing. And a speaker that I was listening to, her name is Christine Kane. You might be familiar with A21. (laughs) Um, She was saying that if the gift that is on you, um, let me get this right. She said that the gift that is on you, it will destroy you if what is in you cannot sustain you. And I was really blown away by that because she was really talking about character development and how uh, the Lord wants to take the time to develop us and to grow us up whether it's in our field of employment or whether it's into the calling that he has on our life. And oftentimes we don't want to do that hard work. We don't want to push the paper or, um, you know, put together the boxes of sandwiches at Jason's Deli. We want to be the one out there in front shaking hands and serving and, you know, kind of getting the face time. And that's something that's so generational for us. But I think that 
uh, that behind-the-scenes work that you're talking about is uh, what gets us to the point where the Lord can really elevate us to the position that he has for us in whatever sense that is. Uh, So the next question is for me. It says, what have been the key things that your husband has done to encourage and value your role at home? What struggles have you hit? Pardon me. Um, Well, first of all, my husband is my biggest cheerleader. So I think that he uh, encourages and values what I do on a daily basis. uh, But he also encourages and values what I do uh, by... um, pushing me outside my own comfort zone. So there's times when I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do this. And he's the one, um, he's the one there saying, yes, you can. Of course you can. And uh, giving me those pep talks. Uh, we, you know, we take turns giving each other those pep talks. But oftentimes he is uh, that person who's pushing me out of the nest. And when we made the jump to homeschooling, I had been Well, first of all, you know, years ago, uh, my friends, you know, who homeschooled in Southern California, I thought they were all high. I was like, there's no way. My background is in education, public education. And, um, you know, so I I had all of that kind of ingrained in me going into parenting and um, never thought I would homeschool. In fact, the homeschool kids were the weird kids. You know, and I was like, mm, no, I'm not doing that. Well, as I really saw some significant people in my life take that jump and they really started to inspire me, I started going, oh my gosh, I think I want to do this. But it took years. It took years of my husband saying, oh my gosh, babe, you can totally do this. And I'm going, oh, I don't know. And he's like, no, really, you can. And I'm just kind of going, I don't know if I want to. And I think that's the question that we can come up against so often is, uh, there's that thing in front of us, and sometimes we don't want to do it, you know? Sometimes it's not what we had in mind, and sometimes it doesn't look the way that we thought it was going to look. We thought it was going to look. What was that? Uh, yes, I teach my students at home. Mm-hmm. Um, pardon that grammar. So it's, it doesn't, doesn't always take shape the way that we think it will. And if we are uh, living each day, so I find this is how my husband encourages me. If I'm, if I'm living today and I'm making the decision that the Lord is putting right in front of me, I'm not making the decision um, based on you know, that end goal, uh, that specific end goal that I have, uh, but to be intellectually honest, to say I'm going to go day by day, And I'm going to do what the Lord puts in front of me, and I'm going to make that one right decision. And then he's going to put another decision in front of me. And if I can live right here instead of way out there with what I think my life is supposed to look like, then no matter where God takes me, I get there. I get to the goal. I get to the end result because the end result is looking at him and keeping my eyes on him. So I I find that that's really the encouragement is just what's right in front of us. Uh, if we, if I look too far ahead, I can either get anxious or, um, or start to think that I have it all figured out. So the struggles that we've hit, I would say, um, for me personally is overcoming fear, taking risks, uh, being willing to do something and fall flat on my face and fail miserably in front of a bunch of people or in just in front of myself. And, uh, he's in my corner saying, you know what, uh, if you fail, at least you like went all out. He tells me, he says, I want to see you chase something. I want to see you give everything you've got to that thing that you believe in. And when somebody is in your corner telling you that, you're like, okay, 
I could do it, you know, and I'm kind of like, I feel like I'm in the boxing ring, you know, and I'm, he's sending me out. So, uh, yeah, so he is that, he is that supporter and he's that person, um, you know, here on earth that God has given me, uh, to help me be courageous and take risks. So, uh, there's a lot to, a lot of risks to be taken when you're raising the next generation of the kingdom, you know, that's no small thing. So, um, yeah, really, really important. All right, do we have another question coming up? All right, how do you balance life at work with time with your family and church involvement? Oh, yay. I'm going to hand this one to you. Gabe, too. He's, he's really thought through that. This is good. I think uh, one of the things I do is I go over my schedule with my wife uh, on Monday mornings. We, we always go through our schedule because I want to make sure I – and I don't even want to – I have to be intentional really about spending time with my wife and my kids – because a lot of times I can get my mind can go so much on work and work. And so I, I'm very intentional about when I get home, you know, I put my cell phone away and I'm with my kids and my kids love soccer. And so we play soccer all around the house and uh, there's a lot of things been broken, but it's OK. <laughs> and then um, at home at, at night, uh, me and my wife really try to get some quiet time. We do have a, a one and a half year old. And so sometimes she doesn't want to go to sleep on time. And so that does cut into the time a little bit, but we make sure that we spend time and talk through the day and, uh, and, what's, and what's happening within the day. So, again, being intentional on that Monday morning uh, when I wake up and we talk through our schedule just so I won't come at the last minute, hey, babe, I got this meeting. She's like, wait a minute, I need you to help me with the kids and things of that nature. So I'm, I make sure I'm in very, very intentional with my wife, planning out my time and when I'm going to be with her and the kids. So, yeah. Um. You know, this is probably, like, uh, one of the hardest things when you realize sort of how God's calling works, that you really are sort of helping in his ministry of reconciliation, ushering in the kingdom, and it feels much more weighty, so you're not just sort of doing a nine-to-five anymore. So making it mesh with the rest of your life is, uh, so it's not trivial at all. So, um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, to this day, it's a huge struggle for me sort of figuring out what the right balance is, and and it's never easy. Uh, I'll say one thing we've done. So here's an example. So Jonah, Micah, Caleb, and Noah, will you guys raise your hands? Thank you, buddies. So, so one thing Fair and I, my wife back there, do a lot of is um, like including our kids with us in sort of uh, psychotic things that kids really shouldn't be doing, right? So like <laughs> bluegrass festivals with potheads and really nice restaurants. So like this is, these are things that we drag our boys into. Um, which um, sort of makes for a much more integrated life. I think if you sort of have different kind of sections of your life really kind of carefully parsed out, stuff will start spilling all over the place, and it'll be really frustrating. So as much as you can sort of make your life feel integrated and include your spouse and your family and what's going on at work and then vice versa, very be very involved so it feels much more fluid, I think you have a shot at it. Ooh, what do I do when I hate my job? Yikes. Joe, you want to take a stab at that one? Well, so since I hated my job, I quit. And um, actually, I sold it. But um, we actually, it was interesting. Oye and I were at a a thing this morning about calling and... uh, and giftedness, and the question was, what if you're on the wrong track? They said, well, you know, you've got this vision thing going, and you're able to spend 70% of your time, let's say, doing that. 
well, what if I'm in the wrong position and how do I get out of that? Um, and really there's two choices. I mean, either you kind of stick with it or sometimes you have to just backtrack. And backtracking is kind of tough if you're going up the wrong ladder, if you're going down a career path that was perhaps motivated by money or motivated by um, good intentions, but it's really not your giftedness. Sometimes you have to just bite the bullet and go backwards and say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change ladders. I'm going to go down that path that does, have, that does suit my giftedness um, and, and go down that. Going backward is never easy, but the sooner you go backwards, the better it is. Once you get to be in your 40s or 50s and you have very little maneuvering room, you're basically stuck hating your job, and that is definitely not a life that you want to live. I would also add to this, uh, there is a difference between, um, between doing what you're called to do um, and, and trying to figure, figure that out and uh, trying to find a calling where work isn't hard anymore. And I, we found a lot with the younger generations, with the, the folks who are part of what we do, a lot of times you want work that actually isn't really hard and is really rewarding. And that job is not out there, by the way. Um, there are jobs that will feel easier to you because you're good at it and those sorts of things. But um, it's very important to think about the way that God has made you, but try to also responsibly get on that track. If you have kids, you might want to think twice about quitting, quitting, quitting your job. And, and if you don't have any money anymore, that's a problem, right? Um, you might want to think about what, is it, what does it look like to have faithfulness in this position. But then also, the, probably the most important thing is, if you know that you're not doing what you were meant to do, how do you quit wisely and in a way that gets you into the right place and put together a plan? You know, Because a lot of times what people will do is they'll have this kingdom angst. My buddy Chris Gonzalez calls it the kingdom angst, where all of a sudden people realize they want to do something for the kingdom, and the very next day they quit their job, and then they're like, oh, what am I going to do next? <laughs> and, then they, and then after about three months of nobody offering them to be like the president of the United States, uh, then, they, then they go get a job at Chipotle just because they need to make some money somehow. So get in that right track. Think about that right track. Get counsel from others. But do it in a way that exemplifies wisdom. So. Hey, Jim, can I talk? Speak to that do it, man. Yeah. I, I, when I first got here, I had a job that I really hated. Um, I was a special education teacher. And if anybody's worked in special education, it's very challenging. And, it, and I didn't like it it wasn't cha- because it was challenging. I love the kids. I didn't like the system that I was in. Um, but I believe that um, when we look at the Bible as a story, I believe that God put me in that position to teach me a lot of things about myself. So although I hate it, I, I never forget every time 10 o'clock came, I had to be up at 5 in the morning, I get scared, like, oh, my goodness, I got to go to sleep. And I know when I wake up, I have to be that, go to that job. Um, but I think it was very, God was, deci- like, he used it to disciple me and to, to mold me and shape me into, you know, I learned some things that I would have never have learned if I didn't have that job. So even though you hate your job, God can be teaching you and, and bringing out some things that in you that can actually prepare you for the future. So. I, too, have been in that position, but I think one of the pivotal questions is to ask yourself, why do you hate your job? Because, like Jim was saying, if you hate your job because you're lazy and you don't want to work hard, then, you know, then there's going to be some character development that God's going to be doing in you through that. But I found myself in a position where 
Um, I had been in vocational ministry, and I thought that that's where I was supposed to continue going, and I bulldozed my way into a job working um, in ministry that I thought on the outside seemed to fit me perfectly. It, you know, it fit my strengths finder and uh, my uh, personality tests, but I hated it. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, but I, I'm working in ministry, though, and why do I hate it? And what I realize is that um, I had been pushing and pushing and pushing my way into what I thought I was supposed to do, and I wasn't asking the Lord what he had for me. So when the Bible teaches us about how God gives Israel over to themselves, he gives people groups over to themselves into the desires of their own hearts, well, that's what he had done. And so here I am in this job in, in, in ministry, you know, serving the Lord, and I'm miserable. And God's like, hello, that's because that's not what I have for you. And so even though it seemed, you know, we, we talk a lot about how, um, you know, working for a church or being a pastor, that, that's, that it's no greater than, Ricardo says all the time, you know, that it's no greater than uh, the restaurant owner, you know, the software developer, the, the mom or dad. Um, even the plumber. And it's so true. And so I really had to kind of uh, repent of that and understand that the, that the misery I was experiencing was my own fault because I had misplaced myself instead of asking God to place me. So I think when we, when we hate our jobs, um, we have to ask ourselves why and, and why we're there in the first place because oftentimes, like I was saying, God's teaching us through those jobs and uh, sometimes staying in that job that you hate is the exact thing that he's calling you to do. So another question, how did you know you were called to your work? Um, Christy, I think that you've talked a little bit about that. I don't know if you want to expand on that. Um, I think that, uh, and I did talk a little bit about it, that it was just sort of a natural fit. This is something I couldn't not do. Um, but I also think that um, I had uh, my husband super, super supportive. He's at home with our kid right now. He's doing the dishes for me as we speak, right? Not for me. For his, they're his dishes too. Um, <laughs> but um, I knew that the people in my life were supportive. That this was, and it was also something that I felt like I was good at. Um, that I, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that I'm not good at. But picking picking some of those things that I felt like this is a good fit. The people in my life are supportive. I feel like it's the right call. And these are the things that I'm that I'm good at, and I can't not do it. Um, I don't know how how that wouldn't be kind of a calling from God. Maybe somebody else? So, um, uh, God's sovereign, and sometimes it's just really dumb luck, right? So, like, I was in college, and I didn't know what I was going to major in, and it was kind of a mess, and Farrah and I were going to get married, so she said, you know, you're probably going to have to have a job, right? And so (laughs) I... (laughs) I flipped through the catalog at U of A. It seemed like they were paying, uh, like, MIS majors well. And so I said, all right, well, I can pay the mortgage doing that. It turns out that in God's sovereignty, that as I did that, I started to flourish and see success. And so um, I, I guess that's probably, the I'm guessing, the more common case for most people in the room. You probably didn't see skywriting. You probably just took the job that your uncle gave you, and either you're good at it or you weren't, and that's okay. So, so for me, I, I think just um, sort of God's sovereignty and me stumbling backwards was uh, how I identified my calling. But then once I found it, it turned out it worked really well, and so um, I, I was incredibly grateful. That's great. 
Actually, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to ask Joe to answer that question, but I'm going to narrow it. I'm going to, so if you could explain, explain to us what Agritopia is and how you knew that God wanted you to move forward with that project. Okay. That's a difficult one, but I'll go for that. So um, Agritopia is our family farm. Um, my folks moved there in 1960. And we grew up there and farmed, and still do farm there, do urban farming. So um, part of my giftedness, uh, and, and it's taken a while, it's been a process to find out what the giftedness is. Um, part of that is um, a stewardship responsibility. Uh, if you're going to be a visionary or dreamer-doer, you have to bring together the elements to make the thing happen. And so... For, for me, there was a strong burden of stewardship of the land because God had really blessed uh, my folks through it and it had been a blessing to our entire family. And so we decided that we wanted to uh, create our own community that would preserve urban agriculture and would also create kind of a ideal community from our point of view. And we think that the ideal community is basically one in which um, you have an integrated life that you were talking about where people know each other on many different levels. It breaks down barriers for having uh, conversations, for getting to know one another. And we think that in so doing, um, people are able to interact and, and, and God is honored through that. And so um, we just felt uh, pressed upon us that we needed to be wise stewards of land, not just sell and go away, but to be engaged with that particular town, the town of Gilbert, uh, to create community and to create um, a multi-generational thing. So it was, it was clear to me, you know, God didn't speak to me strictly, but it was clear that that was something that we needed to do. That's great. That's great. I love how you're, you're, you're being shaped by Scripture of, of stewarding the land and taking care of the land and seeing that space as God's space that he's entrusted you with. That's really cool. Well, as we know, farming is both the first profession and it will be the profession in the new garden, right? Yeah, that's right. There might be some software development, right, Gabe? (laughs) (laughs) All right, how do you know you are called into church ministry? Uh, Maybe we can get Jim to pitch in on this one and OYU as well. Well, uh, yeah, I've, I've got the mic attached to my face. Here's what I would say. I would say that the, the more, what's even more important than figuring out exactly what you're called to do, like a specific job, God may have you in many jobs, but the more important question is to figure out who you are, how God has made you and how God has shaped you. And I know that God has made me in, uh, with some particular gifts, some particular passions, and he's brought me to this church, and uh, 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 the community, uh, the pe- folks of the church have really affirmed that. Other folks in my life have affirmed that. But I would not say that I am called uh, to uh, church ministry. Is that the? Because yeah. you're all called to ministry. There's church ministry and there's farm ministry and those sorts of things. But I would say that I wouldn't say that I am called to church ministry in general. I would say that I am called to be at Redemption Church at this time and this place because of how it fits with my gifts and how much I believe in what's happening here and how God has sovereignly orchestrated it. If, if, uh, if Ricardo fired me one day, 
uh, I would have to seriously, uh, I wouldn't just put my resume out to a bunch of churches. I would have to ask God where he wants me to go and wouldn't just assume that I've been given this mantle as pastor forever, you know? I would say um, you would definitely, to me, and being around pastors all the time, I get an opportunity to talk to a lot of guys and myself, introspectively thinking about myself. <laughs> I would say you would definitely, one, need to be a servant and an equipper. Uh, you think about Ephesians 4, pastors are to equip uh, people for the work of the ministry. So we're all in ministry. Like, just because you're a pat, just because we're, sometimes we look at pastors as a hall calling and Kareen, a high calling, and Kareen alluded to this. But we all have the opportunity. We are all God's hands and feet out in the world uh, doing the work of the ministry. And so definitely you need to be an equipper. Um, and also you need to <laughs> be a servant and love people. So I think that if you have those, I think that that's a good start. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap us up here. I want to ask one last question. We've got a minute. You can take two, you know, based on the time zones and everything. Um, but, uh, I want to kind of end on this question. Um, it, how does technology and someone who's, uh, engaged with technology and working in that field, um, contribute to the flourishing of the city? Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I think there's sort of two bits to that. One is that, um, kind of, uh, God made the raw materials that go into all technology, Right, so like I'm I'm not a huge car guy, but I know that um, when you look at a BMW, it, the some of its parts is sort of magnificent, right? I mean, it's a, it's a special special thing, and it's all made up of sort of individual parts fashioned from God's raw materials. And just sitting on a piece of rock doesn't pull you along the autobahn at 200 mm-hmm. miles an hour. So um, technology and subduing creation sort of making good use of um, God's raw materials is incredibly exciting. I would say uh, the other thing is, um, so I just flew in from Nashville last night. I was in Nashville for several days with um, a bunch of cool pastors and religious leaders. It was uh, a ton of fun. Um, The fact that I could get on an airplane and go do that and be back to see my kids the next morning is amazing. Right, And so the fact that I can call my wife on FaceTime from my iPhone while I'm there and interact with my wife and my kids is amazing. The fact that, uh, I like, John Adams is my hero. John Adams and his son Quincy, like, sailed over to France together and hung out there for, like, months. And all they did was, like, him and Abigail wrote letters back and forth, right? And that's all they got. Like, I really like the fact that I don't have to sail on a boat with scurvy for two months, right? Yeah. I really like FaceTime. FaceTime's amazing. And so <laughs> that there's ramifications of that that are broader than just convenience. I mean, there's ramifications. Like, so one of the organizations we work with is Trimble Navigation. So Trimble Navigation automates farming, and they can sort of use these huge machines to plant seeds very precisely without wasting a single seed and grow massive crops that feed millions of people. So, you know, sort of the urban gardening argument aside, not to alienate Joe up here, but so, but there's something, (laughs) 
So, <laughs> but there's something good about um, human flourishing that, that brings an end to poverty, that brings an end to suffering, that brings people relationally closer together when leveraged well to the glory of God. And so to sort of get to be a part of that, uh, I feel blessed to be a part of it. That's cool. Thanks. Would you give these guys a hand? Here's, here's how I would like to, um, to close the night. I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you on behalf of the elder team here for doing the work of the ministry. You are the real ministers of this church. And as elders, our role is to equip. So we look at the work that you do and we thank you for it. And we just want to say we're here for you to pray for you, to support you, and to build the theology behind the work that what you're doing and, and be in those conversations together. Just so you know, you can always email me if you have work things you want me to pray for. I set apart some time every week to pray for people. I love it when people send me job descriptions and business plans and I can pray through them. It's really cool. It's like my prayer guide. And so we say thank you. But we also want you to say thank you. So we've made up these thank you cards that you can pick up on the, in the back on the way out. And it says, thank you for your good work. And, and on the back, it's a place for you to write a, a, a note. And we want you to fill the, cities with, the city with these thank you cards. And go to all of the businesses, all of the workers, all of the folks that you really appreciate. The janitor that works hard. The teacher that teaches your kids. And write them a thank you note on behalf of Redemption Church for the good work that they do and how they contribute to the flourishing of the city. On the back of this card it says, Dear blank, thank you for your good work. We believe that God deeply cares about the flourishing of our city and that your hard work makes our community a better place to live. We, the people of Redemption Tempe, are grateful for the work that you are for, for your work and are glad to call you our neighbors. So pick a few of these up on your way out and fill the streets with gratitude, and we're really thankful for you. Let me close in prayer. God, I thank you for each person in this room and for the unique way that you shaped them, how they are your craftsmanship. Thank you for the unique jo jobs and roles and work of the people in this community. We pray that you would bless them and that they would be a blessing to others, that you would make them effective in their work, that they would do it for your glory and for the love of their neighbor and would, a, would look a lot like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.